We're continuing with this series on the life and leadership of David. Um, and let's just kind of back up and see where, where we left our hero last time. Uh, David is, has just slain Goliath. And, and he's, he took Goliath's own sword and chopped his head off. And, uh, and he's making a huge point in that moment. Uh, because, I mean, we'll, we'll review a little bit. How many of you remember the technological advance that, that gave the Philistines a big advantage in the region? Somebody remember what it was? Iron. It was iron. They had iron, and the other re, uh, people in the region didn't have it. They had discovered the process of forging iron. And, uh, and when you have an iron sword and the other guy has a bronze sword then you're going to win that battle. That's just the way it goes. And so they have at this time, they have made it illegal for the Israelites to own iron forges or, or iron weapons or iron tools. Uh, they, they, can't eat, they can't have an iron plow. They can't even, you know, no, you can't have an iron shovel. You can't have iron anything at, at all. And, and here's the thing about it uh, with, uh, with iron and with technology Technology always turns wars. I'll give you an example of uh, how technology helps turn the tide, how it makes a difference in war. Uh, there was, uh, when the Islamic world invaded Europe for the first time, there was a major technological advance that, that allowed the European army to turn the Islamic uh, uh, armies back. Anybody have any idea what that technological advance was? You'll never guess it. It was stirrups. Stirrups, because, you know, they had, when you have two riders riding at each other to fight one another, what's your goal? To get them off. You know, the European soldiers had reached a point, you know, where they said, you know what, we fall off our horses too easily. Let's tie something, let's attach these things to the bottom of our saddles, and that made it where they didn't fall off as easily. And that gave them just enough edge to be able to repel the army that was trying to invade, invade uh, Europe. And so... Technological advances make a big difference. And so the Philistines, they understand this, and so they're trying to keep the technology of iron away from the Israelites. And so they make it against the law because they're oppressing them. But now Saul, he begins to open up forges and begins to have iron weapons. Uh, however, they're still very rare in Israel at this point in time. Uh, most of the Israelites are still fighting with bronze swords. So when, when David cuts off Goliath's head uh, and he cuts it off with Goliath's iron sword, he's making a, a, a monumental statement there to the Philistines who are watching. And he says, listen, if you won't let us forge iron weapons, we're going to take your iron weapons and kill you with them. It's a powerful statement in that moment. And now as a result of that, David is elevated. He's raised up by Saul. We've talked about the, this matter of Saul becoming jealous of David. He keeps sending David on more and more dangerous missions to put him in a position where he'll be killed because he's trying to get rid of him because he's jealous of him. But David just continues to succeed. So, so Saul's uh, plot to engineer David into, uh, into a place of getting him killed actually causes David's reputation to go up. And so at this point in time, Saul has reneged on his promise to let David marry his daughter, finally given the younger daughter, Michael, to him. And they got married, and Saul's jealousy and wrath continues to grow greater and greater and greater as he hears the people in the town of Gibeah and all the surrounding areas singing the song, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his what? Ten thousands. 
And Saul wigs out. He can't take this anymore. And everything Saul does to destroy David makes him more famous and builds him up even more in the eyes of the people. So he finally just tries to say, listen, I'm just going to kill him myself. And he tries to kill him with a spear. And that's sort of where we left our, our hero. So now listen, when you are in a situation where you have a superior that's treating you unfairly, that you, you, you do not in that situation have the right to lay your hand on that person. You can't bring them down. You cannot criticize. You can't destroy. You cannot hurt. You can't do those things. But listen to me. You always have the right to leave. But you have to leave gracefully. You know, you, you, it's not like, okay, well, you know, I can't stay under this guy anymore. And so... I'm going to head out the door, but as you head out the door, you throw a hand grenade in behind you. You know, that's not, you can't do that. Uh, you, you always have the right to leave, but you have to leave like a Christian. So David, he's in the place. He's got to leave because he's, got, he's, either, he's out, either got to defend himself, which he's already vowed that he's not going to raise up his hand against God's anointed. He has to leave. And David runs to his house. David takes his, his young wife, Michael, in his arms, and this is a very, very hard thing. Ima imagine this, ladies. If your husband takes you in, your, in his arms and he says, I'm your husband and I love you, but your father's trying to kill me. I mean, this is a hard situation. And that issue, when it comes to, the, to, to this relationship, it, it's an issue that's going to cause a divided loyalty in a young girl's heart to rise to the surface here she is. She's this spoiled, rotten baby daughter of the powerful king of Israel. And she has to decide whether she wants to be the, be the daughter of Saul or the wife of David. And in the middle of the night, Saul sends people to surround their house. It's just a night of sheer terror. They yell at David, come out. We're, we're here to kill you. We're going to get you. And it was just a horrible, horrible night. So David says, you know, now your father Saul has surrounded the house with assassins. I have to leave. And Michael actually agrees to help him escape. Uh, but, but in reality, even though she did that, because of a decision she made shortly afterwards, this was the night that really rips David and Michael apart. Because when they married one another, they were in love. Michael loved David when they started. And she helps David. You know, they put together... Uh, how many of you... You ever seen this? I always wanted to do it, you know, when I was a kid. How many of you, when you, when you were a kid, you uh, uh, put pillows under your bed and made it look like you were laying there so you could, so you could go somewhere else? Anybody, anybody admit to that? You listen, I hate to tell you, but you're not original. That's exactly what David and Michael did. She, she makes a fake dummy laying in the bed, making it look like he's there. And, and, and David goes out the window and, you know, they blow out the lamps, make it look like, oh, it's time for bed. And he slips out the back window and the soldiers come in. They're ready to arrest David. And they find out he's not even there. And when her deceit is discovered and her, and her father, the king, demands an ex, ex, explanation, in that moment she's given an opportunity to stand as David's wife. She could have said, why are you trying to kill him? He has done nothing to you except 
fight your battles and win them and, 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 and he's done nothing except slay your giants and he's done nothing except sing you to sleep. He's been nothing but a righteous husband to me, your daughter, and I love him very much. Why are you trying to kill him? But instead, she remains daddy's little princess and in, in so doing, she fuels her father's rage even more because her response is, well, I had to. I just picture her standing there with these crocodile tears pouring down from these, these, these pitiful brown eyes. And she's saying, I had to. He threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. And all that did was fuel the rage even more. Now, Michael disappears from David's story for many years. And later, much, much later, living in Jerusalem with her husband, King David, at the end of her life, she's only referred to as the daughter of Saul and never referred to as the wife of David because she never could choose to, to be a wife to her husband. Now, David, he leaves the house. He's got to figure out where to go. Where am I going to go? So he flees and, and, uh, Gibeah, and, and he, now he's loved by the nation. He's admired by the army, but you also have to remember this, that the person who owns the public relations, the propaganda machine, that's the person who's able to shape the message in any culture, in any society. Saul is the one with the power in this story. And so he turns the message and says, David is a rebel. David is, uh, has fled. David is, is gone. David's an outlaw. And this, after this narrow escape uh, from Saul's killers, David's really left with just very few options. Where can I go? Where am I supposed to go? I mean, I don't even have a home anymore. I can't go back to my house. The soldiers are there. Uh, I, what am I supposed to do? And so he, he leaves and he, and he flees from the city of Gibeah and he goes up to Ramah. Now, this is really an understandable decision because what, in essence, David decided to hide out with the very man who launched him on this journey, Samuel. He says to himself, you know what, uh, this guy started this thing, so maybe I should go to him. Maybe he's responsible for this. And so he goes up to Ramah, and at Ramah there's an unusual place called Naoth. And Naoth is where Samuel the prophet lives. And it's, it's sort of an uh, out there fringe prophetic Bible school on the outskirts of, of Ramah. And, and he tells Samuel what's happened. And he says to Samuel, he says, you know, I, I, I think that Saul has spies all over the country. He's going to find out that I'm up here. And I just, Samuel, I can hear him saying, oh, he, he definitely will find out you're up here. And David says, if he finds out I'm up here, he's going to send, he'll probably send uh, troops up here. He's going to send some soldiers to come get me. And Samuel says, oh, 100%. He's definitely going to send soldiers. There's no doubt he's going to come try to get you. And then he says, just stand still and watch the deliverance of the Lord. And I, I want you to really hear this because this may be, out of all of David's life, this may be my favorite story of all of the, of the things in his life because it is it's one of the most stories of the most incredible supernatural uh, stories in, in, in all of David's life. Well, that night, he's up there in Naoth with Samuel. And, and, you know, just there in the middle of their worship service and some of Saul's soldiers ride up to get David. And 
Samuel, you know, he just continues to lead the prophets in their, in their worship. And these soldiers just ride up to take David. And, and when they come into that atmosphere, the, that spirit, that thick, dark mystery of God's presence there among the prophets, they bust in there to, you know, to throw the cuffs on David. We're going to haul him away. He's done for. And instead, they throw, they throw their hands in the air and they begin to prophesy over David. Now, now, you know, we don't know precisely what they say, but I think it's fair to assume that they're prophesying over David because that's the whole situation at hand here. And, and, and here they've, they've come to arrest David and they take him back to Saul and, and, and they're going to have him killed. And they walk into the room with their swords drawn, ready to take David by force or to kill him on the spot. And, and, and you know, David, I can just picture him as he, he's attempting to escape and <laughs> And he is just stopped in his tracks when he hears the clanking of swords being dropped on the, on the floor and, and, the, and the voices of the soldiers exclaiming loudly, Praise be to God! The Lord's choice is David! May the God of Israel bless David and his throne! He will lift David up as king and Saul will be removed! And, and they're prophesying, they're speaking the word of the Lord. And David kind of slowly he very cautiously moves back in and came to sit next to Samuel listen to the soldiers prophesy. Now, can you imagine what the soldiers must have been thinking and feeling in this moment? First of all, I mean, they, they get back on their horses. They're going to go back down to Gibeah. And they're going to have to tell the king what happened. I mean, that's a, this is not an easy situation for them. So they, they ride back down there. I picture in my mind, I have this imagination, I try to picture some, some of these things, and I just, I just try to picture in my mind that moment when, uh, when uh, they come back to King Saul, and, uh, and, and, and he says, all right, how'd it go? Is he dead? Well, no. You, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I, I just, I, it's just a funny story. A funny thing happened on the way to kill David, Saul. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't even know how to tell you this. And so, anyway, now Saul is furious. And Saul, you know, he sent another group of soldiers to finish what the previous squad failed to do. I mean, he wanted David dead, and he was not about to let it go. And, and so the night after that, he sends uh, the, more soldiers. He sends a, a third night, he sends another group of soldiers. And so all three nights... The very same thing happens that when the soldiers show up to, to either take David or to kill David, instead they start prophesying over David. Every, every, all three nights. So now on the fourth night, Saul says, I'll go. And so Saul himself takes a detachment of soldiers and rides down from Gibeah to Ramah and, and, and out to their little prophetic school called Naoth. I guess he decided if you want to kill somebody, it turns out you have to do it yourself. And so, you know, and one thing Saul knew, he said, all, all these weak soldiers of mine, I'll tell you one thing, I'm not going to prophesy over David. I'm going to get him. So Saul, he busts into that prayer meeting that, that next night. Saul comes uh, uh, underneath the, the cloud of the presence of God. And Saul, he, he ends up, I mean, what God does with him is even 
he takes it even further because Saul ends up stripping himself naked, falls on the floor at Samuel's feet and begins to prophesy about David. And he's in any, he, the soldiers, I mean, they're, there watching uh, this and it actually started a proverb that is still in use today by Hebrew people as sort of a tongue in cheek saying, it says, is Saul then numbered among the prophets? And it's just a kind of a saying that uh, uh, laughing at somebody that's that's uh, saying something that, that is, is contrary to their own good. So here's the king of Israel, and he's lying on the floor in front of the prophet Samuel, and he's lying there naked prophesying, and he does that all night long. The king is, is lying there naked prophesying the good of David, the man he came there to kill all night long. And when the morning sun comes up, Saul is still naked in the floor at Samuel's feet. The soldiers, have, you know, they've camped in the, in the corner of the courtyard. Saul gets up, gets dressed, and what are you going to do? He just ride back to Gibeah. What's the point of this? Now, here's the thing. How many of you understand that David didn't, even though he was, uh, God's hand was on him, he didn't always make good decisions? Now, later on, there are some really bad ones he makes, but he makes a decision here uh, that honestly baffles me because having been divinely protected by God at, at Ramah in, in Naoth, David says, I got to get out of here. He, and sooner or later, he says, Saul's going to break out of this Holy Ghost spell and going to kill me. Sooner or later, some soldier's going to come up here and he's not going to prophesy. Sooner or later, they're going to get me. And so he makes the decision to say, I need to leave this place. My question to David would be, why? Why would you leave? God has miraculously, supernaturally protected you. He's made a promise to you and, and, he's, and he's kept that. I mean, the very man, the most powerful man in the entire nation has come against you personally in this place and God said, no more, no, no further than this, Saul. That's as far as you're going to go. You're not going to touch him. And now he makes a decision to leave. Well, Ultimately, David believed that he had to take his protection into his own hands. And you know what? Sometimes like David, you can find yourself in a uh, truly bad place through no fault of your own. You know, how many of you know that no one sins in a vacuum? You know what I mean by that? What I mean by that is, how many of you have ever heard somebody say, I can do this, it doesn't affect anybody else? Yes, it does. No one sins in a vacuum. Other people, your sin affects other people, but other people's sin affects you. And so somebody, somebody else can make it, uh, uh, can, their destructiveness can, can get you into a horrible place and it might not be your fault at all. The problem for a lot of us is at that moment in time, we try to, we try to fix the situation on our own. We do like David. Instead of staying in the place where God can protect us, we, we try to take control of it. And we forget 
that the weapons of our warfare, warfare are not natural, they're supernatural, and we're not going to be able to fix every situation by the power of the flesh. And there are many times in our life that everything in us wants to run, wants to hide, wants to go someplace else, wants to try to fix it, wants to try to figure it out. And there are many, many times that the voice of the Lord will come if we'll be still enough to hear the whisper where he'll say, be still and know that I am God. Be still. Stop fighting. Stop trying to figure it out. But just be still. Because what did David do to protect himself at Naoth? Not one thing. He was completely helpless. He was completely vulnerable. If God had not intervened, there was no way that he was going to survive that. And yet he ran. So David, he, he slips out of Ramah. And from there he goes to see his best friend. Who was his best friend? Jonathan. Now David goes down to Jonathan. And he says, Jonathan, what have I done? Why is your dad trying to kill me? Jonathan says, that's not true. He's not trying to kill you. If that were true, if he were trying to kill you, I would know it. And David says, Jonathan, I'm telling you, it's true. He, didn't want, he made sure you didn't hear about it because he knows we're best friends. Hello. And they come up with a plan because Jonathan is not convinced. And they, they come up with a plan to, to see if what David is saying is really true. And, and there was a feast coming up in the, uh, the next day and and, and Saul would expect David to be there. That would be a normal course of, of their uh, operation. And the plan was that David was going to skip the feast. And, and Jonathan was going to tell Saul, his father, uh, that, he went to, that David went to celebrate with his family. And he was going to do this to see how Saul would react. Because on a normal situation, on a feast day like that, if, if, if David had gone to celebrate with his family, Jonathan would say, say to his father, he'd say, he went to, to celebrate with his family. He says, oh, well, that's good for him. Good for him. I hope he has a good time. And so he did this to see how, how Saul would react. And, and, and if he reacted normally, then Jonathan would know David just misunderstands this. There's nothing wrong here. But if he reacted in anger, then Jonathan would know that David uh, was right and that Saul wanted David dead. So, so they do this. They pull this plan off. Jonathan says, Saul says, hey, uh, Jonathan, uh, you're, you're best friends with David. You should know where he is. Where is he? Why isn't he at the feast with us today? Oh, oh no big deal, Dad. He went, to, he went to celebrate the feast with his family. And Saul reacted with extreme anger to the point that he even threw a spear at his own son. <laughs> he has lost it. Now, now, Jonathan and David, they had set up a sign to communicate with David uh, about re without revealing his location because, you know, they had to find a way to be able to communicate after they figured this out. David was going to be hiding and he wouldn't know if it was safe to come out. So they had to have some sort of sign, some sort of system. And so the system was what the sign was going to be that Jonathan was going to take a servant boy out into, into the wilderness of the area where David was. And he was under the ruse of saying that we're, we're going to, 
I'm going to go out there for target practice with my bow and arrow. So I need you to come because I'm the king's son, so I can't go get my own arrows. So I'm going to shoot the arrows, and you go get them for me. Uh, and, and so that was the idea. And, and then he, he would shoot the arrows and then send the servant boy to collect them. And if, if Saul was planning to kill David, uh, or if he was not planning to kill David, then Jonathan would call to the servant boy. He'd say, oh, no, you've gone too far. Come back to me. And that would be the symbol. The symbolism was David. It's safe. You can come. But if, if, if he found out that Saul was going to kill David, then Jonathan would shoot the arrow. The servant would go out there and he'd say, no, no, it's beyond you. You need to go further away. And so they did that. And so then the, the servant boy, he, you know, he uh, collected those bows and the, the arrows, I mean, and Jonathan gives them to the servant, sends him back into the city. And when the coast was finally clear, when there was nobody around, David came out from his hiding place. And in that moment, David and Jonathan realize that things are never going to be the same again. There, there's a portion of the story of David and Jonathan's friendship that is so powerful. I want, to, I want to read that portion to you. It's from 1 Samuel 20, verses 41 and 42. When the boy had gone, David arose from the south side of the stone and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times. They kissed one another and wept together, but David wept more. Yes, he did, because Jonathan's losing his best friend, but David is losing his best friend and everything else. Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since the two of us swore in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord will be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants forever. So he arose and departed, but Jonathan went into the city. Here's a parting of the ways. Best friends, they've made a covenant to one another, saying, as long as our families are alive, my descendants will take care of yours and your descendants will look after mine. We're, we're, we're family forever. And now one goes one way and the other has to go the other way. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever had this in your life at all, but there are those people every now and again Maybe, maybe even only once in your lifetime where there is this instant, immediate, total friendship that lasts a lifetime. And you have two people here that love each other in pure brotherly or, you know, or, or in, in ladies here with sisterly love. And Saul, who despises David unreasonably, sees how that he himself uh, in an effort to get David killed, has actually made David even more of a celebrity because he sends him on these, these impossible missions and David keeps coming home a hero every time. And he tried to get him killed with this horrible pagan dowry uh, and he asked for a hundred Philistine foreskins and that makes David even more famous. And then he thinks he can, he can trip David up and trap him by having, his, having him marry his daughter. And then he'll have a little spy in, in the camp for him. And, and, and now, the problem is now that he's married to his daughter and, and he's become this famous, it looks like he's, he may be in line for the throne. So everything that Saul feared is coming true and it's all at his own doing. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all this turmoil, in the midst of Saul trying to kill David and David rising to fame and all this, who's David's best friend? 
Jonathan, Saul's son. And you know what? Saul sees that and it just makes him crazy. He can't stand that. I, I can't get him killed. He's inside my household. He's married to my daughter. And now he's my son's best friend. I can't win with this guy. And Saul is driven to such excess of demonic rage that in the 20th chapter of 1 Samuel, he actually accuses Jonathan of terrible wickedness. I, I just want to read it to you. Remember, uh, when, when we started this, I told you that Saul was from Gideon, that it was very important to remember that. You remember when I said that? And the reason, one of the reasons is because Gibeah had this background of, of violent homosexuality. You remember that story from the very first week? Well, now listen, 1 Samuel 20, verse 30. Then Saul was angry with Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he is a dead man. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? So Saul cast a spear at him to strike him. Therefore, Jonathan knew that his father was determined to kill David. That took place at that feast. In other words, in other words, Saul looks at his own son and says, and this is right from that translation there practically, he says, your mother was a pervert. And you're no, no better than she was. And, and he, says, he says, you're a pervert and you're a rebel. You've fallen in love with David and you've made a shame of yourself and of me. And, and furthermore, he hints that he said that David must he's probably sleeping with your mother. Just crazy stuff. And I want to say to you again, once you get a really demonic enemy that hates you, he will make outrageous accusations against you and then violence is always the next step. Saul comes to the place where he's, he's just out of control. He's just out of control here. He, and he tries to kill Jonathan just as he had tried to kill David with a spear. I mean, he, he tries to kill his own son. I can't even imagine how absolutely, absolutely uh, uh, maniacal a brain has to be to make a decision to say, I'm going to, to take this spear and run it through my own child. He's completely mad. He's the quintessential mad tyrant. He's accused his son and David of a perverse relationship, and he has hinted that David may even be sleeping with Saul's wife, Jonathan's mother. And in the middle of all this, Jonathan and David have this friendship that is unshakable. You know what? If Michael, the daughter of Saul, is the tragic person of the story, like we talked about, I think it was last week, then Jonathan is the great, wonderful, noble person of this story. Jonathan is one of the most admirable people in all of Scripture. It, it, now, it didn't spare his life. He, he dies in the hands of the Philistines at Mount Gilboa, but he, he never... Uh, became king, but Jonathan is just this precious young man, a good friend, a, a loyal person who, who sees the truth. 
And he does not allow his mind to be confused. But, but he says, I know my father is wrong. He is completely wrong. I mean, Saul even said to him, says, Jonathan, as long as David's alive, you'll never be king. Jonathan knew that. He knew that. He, he knew exactly what was going on. He, he says to David, he says, you're right. He said, the Lord has revealed to me that you're going to be the king. I'll never be the king. And he says, that doesn't make, you, make me hate you, David. That makes you, me love you all the more. David and Jonathan are friends, but they're friends in a way that many of us in this world never really know. Some people never have a friend like that. And I'm going I'm to close with this, but you know what, what you think in your youth is that you will establish friends in high school or middle school uh, or maybe even elementary school or even maybe college and you think you're going to establish friends that will be your friends for the remainder of your life. How many of you have found that that just is not really true very often? In fact, I can probably count on one hand the number of my high school classmates that I have even seen since I graduated. You know, and yet, because we think that there's going to be lifelong friends and we think that 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 friendship is so important to us that, that, that in an effort to have many friends, sometimes it's easy for us to compromise who we are as a person uh, in order to maintain that friendship. In fact, can, can I tell you this? Uh, and and uh, I believe this very strongly. I think one of the biggest idols in the American church is friendship. You say, what are you talking about? Why would you say such a thing? I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I mean by that. Because we, we lift friendship up to such a high value that if that person is doing something that's going to destroy their soul, we'll, we're afraid to talk with them about what the Bible says because we're, we value the friendship more than we value their soul. And we're afraid we'll lose a friend. Well, what if you keep a friend and they lose their soul? And so in the, in the church, in, in our culture, in our society, we have, now, now don't misunderstand me, friendship is, is a, it's a massive gift of God. But that's what it is. It's a gift from God. It is not our God. <coughs> You know, I mean, I know that you know people, probably, surely nobody in here would ever have done this, but you probably know people that have made decisions and you've gone along with the crowd because you didn't want to hurt a friendship and you did things that now you regret and you wish you had never done. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody else in this room, but that's, that's me. And so the problem is, We, we, we desperately long for that relationship, for the friendship. Um, but maybe, I don't even know how to say this. Maybe we, oh, let's do it this way. Looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs>
<laughs> Listen, you never know. I never know. I'm telling you the truth. Uh, I'm, I've never sung that before in a church service. <laughs> I can't make that promise. Listen, I, I, I want to say this. In your life, if you can build a, a very few or even one true Jonathan and David friendship, you should be grateful to God. Because they're rare. They're hard to come by. You know, I have a, I have a friend. Actually, we live closer than ever before. He lives in just south of Nashville. And he's one of those friends that... You know, uh, we might see each other once a year, but when I walk in the room, it's like we just pick up right where we left off. But, but let me tell you something about Jeff. It's not just pick up where we left off joking and having fun, but we're immediately able to go into discussions and talking about what God's doing in our lives. Is, there's a spiritual friendship there. And, and you know what? That's what we want. That's what we need. And, and I know that you're looking for that. I know you want that. But, but here's, you know, somebody once said, if you want to have, have friends, show yourself friendly. If you want to have that kind of a friend, you've got to be ready to be that kind of a friend. Now, I'm telling you this. That's a scary thing. Because to be that kind of a friend, you have to take the masks off. And you have to let them see parts of your life that you don't really want anybody else to see. And you have to let them into places in your life that you've never let anybody else in before and that you don't want to let anybody in there. You've got you've to open yourself in a way that makes you feel uh, vulnerable. And you are vulnerable in that type of a friendship. You know, because, I mean, let's just simply ask this. For those that are married... Who in the world uh, can hurt you more than anybody else? Your spouse. Why is that? Because you've made yourself vulnerable. Because you've opened yourself up to them. You've built a, a relationship with them. And, and so, you know, right there, uh, hopefully, you know, I mean, if they know the Lord, that's already a great uh, spiritual friendship there. But, but even beyond that, you know, friendships beyond that. If you want to have that kind of a deep friendship, you have to be willing to open yourself up. And the problem is, you know what we do? We end up waiting and waiting and waiting because we, we get this friend and we think maybe, you know, I really enjoy this person. These, they're good for me. They, they're chasing after God. They're, they have the same values. And we're waiting and waiting. We're saying, well, maybe they'll do it first. Maybe they'll open up and then I can reciprocate. But you know what? Somebody has to take the first step. And sometimes it's you going to that person saying, listen, you know, uh, I don't want this to be weird. But I really value our friendship. And I need somebody I can talk to about some things. And you're one of the only people in the world that I would trust. Is it, can we talk? 
You know, this, this friend of mine did that very same thing. I'm not going to go into the, the circumstances, but confided in me with some things. And I was, I was driving the car. I almost had to pull over because I was, I was crying so hard because he didn't know how I was going to react. Because I could have easily, you know, that's the, the, the scary part is that person can reject you. But I almost had to pull a car over because I was crying because I said, Jeff, I can't believe you trusted me enough to share that with me. And, uh, and, and you know what? If we want to have a David and Jonathan friendship, then we've got to be willing. You know, Jonathan was willing to let David be in the, li- in the limelight. And he was willing to fade into the background. And he was willing to say, I don't want what's best for me. I want what God wants for David. Because that's what's best. It's not an easy thing to do. But that's true spiritual friendship. Would you bow your head and pray together with me? Lord.